2009, December 3rd. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 45, The Future of Life in the Universe. So today we're going to hope that the, the recorder, in fact, works for the entire time of the course. So yesterday we talked about the end of life in the solar system, the future of life in the solar system, and looked at how that's driven entirely by the evolution of the sun, because the sun is the source of all energy for life everywhere in the solar system that we know of. And we ran through the stages of stellar evolution, saw that in about one billion years the Earth would become uninhabitable. But we had options. We could certainly imagine options. We could, in fact, move further out into the solar system ahead of the changing uh, climate due to the brightening of the sun, or for given the very long time scales involved, a billion years, is long compared not only to the lifetime of a species, but long compared to the mean time to colonize an entire galaxy, even for modest star flight, as we saw last week. So we could probably solve the problem of our own homeworld dying because of our dying sun by simply going and finding another world. Not an easy job, but you know, we have a billion years to plan, at least more or less. So you've you got time. But the question is, how long can you really keep doing that, jumping from star to star, because stars will burn out in anywhere, as your homework problem showed, from 4 to 10 billion years, under about 1.3, 1.4 times the mass of the sun. You want low-mass stars, of which they are in abundance, but you've got to find them with habitable planets. And so it's a challenge. So how far can we go? Is there some point where life actually ultimately has to come to an end because there simply is no way for life to continue to exist in the universe? And so today's lecture is going to broaden our view as wide as we possibly can and ask not only in the depths of space but in the depths of t future time, what is the future of life in the universe as a whole? Like the ultimate fate of life in the solar system was determined in large measure by the evolution of the sun, the ultimate fate of an expanding universe is determined by the amount of matter in it, the density of matter within that. And we're going to see a little bit about how that is determined very quickly and also how we measure that. The best current data, to give a summary, is that we live in a spatially flat and accelerating universe. The expansion is, in fact, getting faster with time. In an accelerating universe, once we've determined this, and I think this is a very secure observation now. It was, it was a lot of, of uncertainty for a long time, but I think this is now very secure. In an accelerating universe, we can actually project forward what the evolution of that accelerating universe will be. The primary thing, of course, is going to happen is the galaxies are going to get further apart, and the, galaxy, and the universe is going to get colder, because the universe is expanding, the energy density is going to drop, and that makes things colder. But it has other implications as well. And look, by looking at the known physics of an accelerating universe, we can in fact distinguish five particular eras of the universe that are, that are noted by the physical processes that are dominant during those eras. And now we're going to talk about timescales so long, we're talking about them in 10 to the something years. So we'll review what those five distinct eras are and what the consequences are for life as the different physical processes come into play. But the bottom line is the end state of the universe is not going to be a very cheery place. It's going to be cold, dark, and, and basically maximally disordered. It'll take a very, very long time to get there, as we'll see. And the con content of this lecture is to try to show you what are the stages that which the universe is going to go through, and then at each stage asking whether we can manage to somehow eke out life out of this slowly fading universe. And one of the big conclusions of 20th century astronomy coming into the 21st is that we live in an expanding universe. This is part of the real basis of the cosmological revolution. The universe has a history. It has a definite beginning in the past called the Big Bang, colloquially, 
and it will continue to expand into the future. Because the universe is a physical system, and this is really what the cosmological revolution is about, it views the entire universe, meaning all of space and time, as a physical system which has a past and a future and is governed by physical laws. And we know what we have a very strong confidence that we know what those physical laws are, which means that we have predictive power. We can actually project forward what is going to happen within an expanding universe. We also have some confidence in this because as we look deeper into space, because light has a finite speed, we are literally looking backwards in time. I can't select where I look. I can only look, say, 100 light years away. I'm seeing that portion of the universe as it was 100 years ago. When I look a billion light years away, I'm seeing objects as they were 1 billion years in the past. And I can look literally all the way back to the point that the universe became transparent to light which is when the universe was only about 100 or 300,000 years old. It's currently about 13.7 billion years. It's that fact that I can look into the past that gives me tremendous predictive power because I can test my predictions as to what an expanding universe should look like by driving the movie backwards, if you will, and saying what was the universe like when it was a billion years old or a million years old or so forth. And a lot of the science of modern cosmology and astrophysics is spent doing exactly that kind of very difficult observational research of saying what should the universe have been like in the past if we understand what it's like in the present, verifying that and modifying our understanding from those observations. It's it's, it's very much a scientific pursuit. But that brings us up to the present. And of course, we can also, if we can predict the past, we can also project forward the present behavior of the universe into the future and ask what would the universe be like a billion, a hundred billion, ten to the ten, ten to the twenty years down the line. Turns out that the future of, a, of the universe, in an expanding universe, depends upon the density of matter within it. In other words, we can put this almost into a little slogan which you could print onto a t-shirt, or print on teddy bears or something, that says, density is destiny. So if you want to know what the den- destiny of the universe is, measure its density. Find out how much matter is in there. And the reason for this is because matter is bound to other matter by gravity. If I took my uh, packet of keys out of my pocket and tried to throw them in the air, they are pulled back down by gravity. So ultimately, everything will come to rest here on the Earth as I toss things up, unless I can toss them so fast that they become unbound from the gravity of the Earth. And I would have to throw it very, very fast indeed to basically achieve what's called escape velocity. A different way of putting that is I have unbound the object bound by the gravity. I jump up, I am brought back down because I am bound to the Earth's gravity. My matter pulls upon the Earth, the Earth's matter pulls upon me. In the universe, the same thing operates. All matter pulls on all other matter within the universe. And so the question becomes is how tightly packed that matter is, how close the matter is to each other, determines the state, the degree to which the universe is either bound or unbound. If the universe is bound, which means all the matter is at a very high density, all the stuff is close to other stuff and the gravity is strong, then the universe will start out from an initial Big Bang, expand outwards, but that expansion will slow down. Just in the way when I pull my keys out of my pocket and throw them up, they start out fast, but they eventually slow and stop at the top of the arc and then accelerate back downwards again. And so the universe, if it's a very high density universe, would expand out, slow down, and eventually actually stop expanding for just one breath, and then begin collapsing back down again. 
So a high-density universe, and these are three different universe models depicted schematically. Time goes vertically from the past to the future. On the left to right, I show in decreasing amounts of matter. I'm an astronomer. I love to plot things backwards. So a very highly bound, high-density universe will expand to a maximum size from the Big Bang and then collapse down into a big crunch, where all matter would suddenly try to be in the same place at the same time, which is kind of a bad thing. If the, matter is if the total matter density is exactly what we call critically bound, meaning not so much that you collapse down, but not so much that you run forever in a, at an expanding pace, but you expand out and slowly but surely grind to a halt at infinity, then I have a marginally open or critically open universe, or critically unbound. It's just on the knife edge between being a closed, bound universe that begins and ends in the future and a wide open universe that expands forever. This, this one, critically bound, expands forever, but it does so towards zero speed. It will stop at the infinite future. If I have less matter, then there's not enough matter and gravity to stop the expansion of the universe. And in fact, it will achieve a constant speed in the so-called coasting universe. It would expand out, but as everything gets far apart, the gravity between all mutual objects tails off, and eventually everybody just coasts. They move at a constant speed, and there's a constant expansion rate forever and ever. So density is destiny. The density of the universe determines the destiny of the universe. Either it will close and collapse back upon itself in a big crunch, it will open up to a static universe, which then stops expanding in the distant future, or it will expand forever at a constant speed. That's the basic idea of expanding universes. So what's really going on? Can we actually determine this kind of future behavior by observations? And the answer is we can, but the challenge is we have to be able to accurately measure tremendous distances to objects far across the universe. And that's hard. Measuring distances in astronomy is easily the hardest problem of all that we get. But it turns out that there is one class of objects, a very special class of objects, that are so luminous they are visible from very, very far away. And they behave in such a way that we can actually determine what their luminosity is, their power output, by measuring properties of those events which are independent of their distance. In this particular case, the objects are called type 1a supernovae. Now, we've already talked about supernovae of massive stars exploding. Technically, those are referred to as a type 2 supernova or a core bound supernova. There is also a type 1 supernova, which is not due to a, a, a massive star exploding at the end of its life, but in fact is a white dwarf in a binary system that actually detonates as a result of physical processes occurring within that binary. We haven't talked a lot about this because it's kind of outside the scope and there's a lot of story to this. But basically, if you can push a white dwarf above 1.4 times the mass of the sun in size, it will catastrophically detonate. When it detonates, because it detonates at nearly a constant mass, that detonation produces a net fixed amount of energy in the explosion, which makes for a fixed amount of luminosity. Because of the fixed amount of luminosity, we say that these things are so-called standard candles. That means they are objects whose brightness I know a priori. I don't have to know how far away they are to measure their ultimate luminosity. So I measure how bright they appear. I recognize them as type 1a supernovae. I know from calibrations of nearby type 1a supernovae by other means 
how luminous they should be, and that I just read off the distance. Now, it turns out that these have a number of characteristics that are good. They're extremely luminous. When they go off, they're the brightest thing in the universe for those instances. They have a very characteristic spectrum and appearance that makes it so that there are lots of things which get brighter and fainter in the universe, but this one says, hey, I'm a special type of object. I'm a type 1a supernova, and it calls our attention to this, and we can distinguish them from all the other stuff going crazy in the universe. We put all the details together, and this is a lot, this is really a hard technique. It's not by no means something just as easy as walking out and doing it. We've managed to calibrate this very well, and we're able to now use this to measure the greatest cosmic distances at the greatest, at, with the highest possible accuracy. So type 1a supernovae is our probe. It's our way of looking at how well the universe is expanding, how we can measure the rate of the expansion of the universe. So the goal, in the end, is to measure the speed of the cosmic expansion with time. If the cosmic expansion was moving at a constant speed, then I'd have this yellow line, which is simply a straight line. As I look into the distant pa distance, I'm looking into the past. I'm far away as the past. And of course, as I go back, the recession speed will either be fast or slow, depending upon the expansion rate of the universe. If at a particular distance, out to say a few billion light years away, I can look back and see type 1a supernovae. If I'm in an expanding universe that's a steady rate, this type 1a supernovae will be on the yellow curve. If, on the other hand, the universe is accelerating, it was moving slower in the past, then I will have a smaller recession speed than if it was moving at a constant rate, because it's moving slower in the past, moving faster in the present. And so my curve of distance with speed will curve upwards away from this constant straight line diagonally across the diagram. Similarly, if I live in one of those bound universes that are actually slowing, or marginally bound universes that are decelerating, that are slowing down, then it will have been expanding faster in the past, faster in the past, slower in the present. And so as a consequence, I look out to a certain distance and I see the supernovae moving faster than they do for the prediction of a steady speed. This is kind of a technical plot, but it's basically showing you the effect. I'm looking backwards in time by looking for more distant objects and saying, how fast are they moving compared to the prediction of a steady expansion? The actual data looks something like this. This is, this is a fairly old plot. It's back to only about 2001 or so, but it's, it, it illustrates the, the principle. These are the distances measured to various type 1a supernovae versus their redshift, which is a way of measuring that expansion speed spectroscopically. Well, this curve, of course, looks like it's showing a little bit of upward curving trend, as you would expect for an accelerating universe. And if I flatten this by looking at this not as the absolute expansion with speed, but instead look at the deviation from that unaccelerated steady model, I do in fact see the upturn at large distances of showing a signpost of acceleration. These data basically show that in the distant past, the universe was expanding more slowly than it is today. So the basic conclusion that you can bring away from this is that the type 1a supernova results combined with some other observations which lend consistency to this, is that we actually live in a spatially flat, accelerating universe. This is a really amazing conclusion. This is really one of the biggest results of the end of the 20th century, and in fact, I think, is one of the main foci 
for research in cosmology at the beginning of the 21st is understanding why the universe is accelerating. We don't have a good ex explanation yet for why the acceleration has the magnitude it is or what is driving that acceleration. You may, if you, if you read any science articles, you may have heard of things called dark energy. That's one of the ways in which, a fanciful way that people talk about what is really this problem of universe acceleration, expanding acceleration. So let's not worry too much about the fact that we haven't worked out the details of the physical mechanism behind it. It is an empirical observation that the universe is accelerating, and there are good ideas for how to do that, and we're in the process of testing which of these different ways can, be, can work. But the basic properties of an accelerating universe are as follows. The universe will continue to expand, but the rate of expansion is going to increase as the universe ages. We'll look at the universe rate expansion now. In the future, a billion years, 10 billion years, further down the line, that expansion will be even faster than before. The way we measure the expansion of the universe is by looking at the distances between galaxies. To say that the universe is expanding is not to say that the Earth is getting further away from the Sun and the Moon. Furthermore, it's not even to say that the Earth and the Sun are getting far, far away from other stars in our own galaxy. Because the stars, the solar system, all form a gravitationally bound system. They do not participate in the expansion of the universe. The expansion of space and time in the universe occurs on very large scales, the scales of the space between galaxies. Even within small clusters of galaxies, you can have groups of galaxies bound together. We go through the universe in something called the local group, which has us and the Andromeda galaxy and a bunch of little satellites orbiting around each other. We will continue to orbit around each other or interact with each other via gravity for most of the history of the, soul of the universe. We will not move away from Andromeda. In fact, Andromeda and Milky Way are moving towards each other because that's how, which way the orbits are going right now. But on very large scales, getting out to millions of light years to billions of light years, the motion of the universe is dominated by the expansion of space and time out from between the galaxies. And so the effect of having an accelerating universe is that the space between the galaxies is going to increase at an increasingly rapid pace. Furthermore, the universe is filled with radiation. It's filled with gas. If you have an expanding gas of radiation and matter, that radiation and matter cools. So an accelerating universe means that the universe is going to cool at an increasing rate as we go into the future. So the universe is going to get stuff further apart, so stuff's going to get lower density, stuff's going to get very, very cool. But there's an additional effect that comes into play. The universe is infinite in extent, but as I look out into space, I can only see as far back as the speed of light allows me to see. Light has a finite speed. The universe is about 13.7 billion years old, which means an object that's 14 billion light years away the light traveling from it hasn't had time to reach us yet. It has to travel for another 0.3 billion years. It's out there. It's coming towards us. It's just 0.3 billion light years from us right now and won't come here. So if I look into the universe, I say that I can see structure all the way out to 13.7 billion light years in every direction. But that isn't to say that the universe is 13.7 billion light years in radius. That's just my horizon. There's plenty of stuff beyond the horizon the universe just isn't old enough for the photons to have reached us. So we call that the cosmological horizon. Just like standing on the Earth, you can only see out to the horizon, but you know there's a lot more to the Earth there. You just can't see over the edge. It's kind of analogous. Well, the point of the cosmological horizon is, is that as the universe begins to expand at an accelerating rate, 
galaxies will actually move over our horizon. As we wait longer and longer, more and more galaxies will move over the horizon until every single galaxy, if I wait long enough, except those that are gravitationally bound to us in the local group, will actually end up moving beyond the observable horizon. And that means that actually I will watch the galaxies recede into the distance and eventually go over the cosmological horizon and vanish. So the galaxies will actually vanish, and we can compute how long this will take. If we take the current rate of acceleration at face value, 10 to the 11 years from now, the last visible galaxy that isn't part of our local group will disappear over the cosmological horizon of a 10 to the 11-year-old universe. So it's a really strange way of looking at things. Remember, we we can only see the universe through the speed of light. We can't see things faster than light. We can't know something is out there unless we can measure it. So we'll actually lose sight of our neighbors in space after about 10 to the 11 years. So this is what our present day sky looks like. If I take a deep picture, this is part of the Hubble Deep Field, one of the deepest images ever made of the sky. I see the sky is filled with galaxies like grains of sand. Within our observable horizon, there are estimated to be between 100 and 200 billion galaxies. To remember a number we've used quite a number of times in this class. Wait 10 to the 11 years. Wait 100 billion years from now. And this is what the night sky will look like at large distances. There aren't any galaxies anymore, except for the ones that are just around us. The Andromeda and a couple of the other dwarf galaxies and maybe a few that wander by and join our, our local group. So the future of an accelerating universe is already a fairly dark place. Matter will get so spread out, the space between matter will become larger, or between galaxies will become larger than the cosmological horizon. So let's actually look in more detail at what goes on within this accelerating, expanding universe. We don't have a big crunch anymore, so we don't have to worry about suddenly finding ourselves next to everything all at once. That would be kind of uncomfortable. This is not to say that an infinitely expanding universe is a necessarily comfortable place. In fact, as we'll see, it's a rather cold place. Fred Adams and Greg Laughlin wrote a book a couple of years ago in which they discerned five basic eras of the universe in its history as it expands outwards forever that define basically the physical processes that are important within that time. We like as humans to basically say, oh yeah, that'll take forever, meaning a very long time. But what does it mean when you really contemplate forever? Infinities frighten people, right? One of the things that got Giordano Bruno in a great deal of trouble a long time ago was that he contemplated what it meant to be in an infinite universe. But he did so in a theological context that really ticked off the Roman Catholic Church and they burned him at the stake in 1600. But we too get a little bit uncomfortable when we contemplate infinity. It's very uncomfortable to think about very large numbers. But we can do this. And what's surprising is we actually have enough understanding of the physics of the universe today and enough predictive power in our mathematical ways of modeling the universe that we can make reasonably good qualitative and semi-quantitative statements about what the behavior of an expanding universe will look like. The five ages of the universe are as follows. There's the so-called primordial era that occurred from the Big Bang to about one million years. This is the period before any stars formed, when matter was just in the process of beginning to organize itself. In fact, matter was even beginning to emerge from the intense energy density of the original Big Bang. So all the nucleosynthesis of hydrogen and helium and the light elements like lithium, all that stuff went on during this primordial era. 
And about a million years after the birth of the universe, we expect, in round numbers, when I mean, we're being pretty crude here, we're, you know, the, the figure of merit here is the exponent on the power of 10, not the number out in front of it, is about a million years after the birth of the universe was the appearance of the very first stars, made out of almost pure hydrogen and helium. We haven't seen those first stars yet, the emergence from the so-called dark age of the past, of the primordial era, but we're currently in the process of trying to find them. It's a, it's a very challenging problem, to say the least. Once stars began to form, we enter what's called the star-bearing, or stelliferous era. It's not a very good word, but it, it'll serve for us today, which began about a million years after the Big Bang, and which I'll show in a moment, will extend to about 10 to the 14 years after the Big Bang, 10 of the 13, 10 of the 14 years. At the end of 10 of the 14 years is the end of the very last stars, the end of the life of the very last lowest mass stars. And we enter a period where all of the past stars are just the leftover stellar remnants, the brown dwarfs, the white dwarfs, the neutron stars, and the black holes. There are no more nuclear fusion because objects that are in that stellar remnant form are what is referred to physically as degenerate, that doesn't mean that they're immoral or something. Degenerate actually refers to physical state of certain types of gases. We refer to this as the degenerate era, which is estimated to last between 10 to the 14 and 10 to the 45 years from the Big Bang. Big numbers, one followed by 45 zeros there. This is the era in which we will see the dissolution of organized matter. So the beginning of the universe was the organization of matter into structure, stars, galaxies, people, planets. The degenerate era will see the dissolving of matter, the dissolving the end of stars. At the end of this period, the only organized matter will be locked into black holes, but even black holes can slowly come apart and evaporate. And so in a time scale between 10 to the 45 and 10 to the 100 years, a Google of years, will be the period in which matter even bound up in black holes will begin to dissolve. And the final state happening sometime after the universe is 10 to the 100 years old, we will enter the ultimate end dark era, when there is no more light, there is no more organized matter, there is only a cold, highly disordered, undifferentiated emptiness. Let's walk through this. Not terribly cheery, but let's walk through it and see what we learned. We live right now in the star-bearing era, the stelliferous era. Started about a million years after the Big Bang and will extend forward to about 10 to the 14 years. That's 100, tr 100 trillion years in the future from the Big Bang. The current age of the universe by our best, by our best measurements is about 13.7 billion years. So we've we're, we got a long ways to go. Star formation is currently continuing. New stars are being born all of the time. In fact, in our own Milky Way galaxy, where stars are being born at the rate of about 7 to 10 stars per year within our own Milky Way. As I look out into the universe, even at nearby galaxies, they're actively forming stars if they're very rich in gas. Now, remember we talked about what the age of, the, of a star on the main sequence is, when it goes through its lifetime until it finally ends up as a white dwarf or explodes as a supernova and ends up as a neutron star or a black hole. It happens in a finite amount of time. You say, well, Let's say we took a star that was born right at the beginning of the Stelliferous period, one of the very first stars, and it's going to die, reach its remnant state, at 13.7 billion years after birth. How big of a star is that going to be? A very massive star, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 solar masses, dies in a few million years. So they're born and poof, in a cosmic scale, they die almost immediately and belch out their elements to make the next generation of stars. 
As we saw yesterday, stars like the sun live about 12 and a half billion years. So lower mass stars live an even longer time. We can do the calculation and find that a star whose mass was 0.8 solar masses or less, born at the very start of the Stelliferous era, would still be a star today. Because the universe is not old enough for stars of that low mass to have ended their lives, to have ended up, in the case of a 0.8 solar mass star, to have ended up as white dwarfs. As the universe ages, progressively lower mass stars will begin to become remnants. Of course, we're forming stars actively now, so it's not just like there were all the stars were born at the beginning of the Stelliferous era and they kind of all die and twinkle out. There's a continuous cycle of stellar birth and stellar death going on. As stars age and go through their course of the revolution like the sun, they give up some of their gas to the rest of the, of the interstellar medium and some of the mass that stays locked in a, in a remnant, a white dwarf or a neutron star. The sun, when the sun ends its life at 12 and a half billion years of age or so, half of its mass will be returned to the interstellar medium, ready to be incorporated into the next generation of stars, but half of its mass will be locked up in that fading white dwarf that we will remain orbiting around. So this cycle has got a little bit of an out in it. Meaning every time you make stars, every time the gas goes round and round through the generations, some fraction of it gets locked up in a remnant that no longer takes part in being, the, in being, star, in being a next generation of stars, while some fraction is returned to take part in the cycle of stellar life and stellar death. So we've got a process which is slowly but surely draining the gas reserves of the universe. And that's what sets the upper limit of the Stelliferous era. The Stelliferous era began when the universe was cool enough for the first stars to form out of the initial Big Bang. The Stelliferous era will end when we run out of gas reserves. Because every time the gas goes around a generation, some of it gets lost and locked up as remnants. So with each generation, successive generation of stars, more and more matter gets locked up in stellar remnants. We can compute based on projections of the star formation rate and the formation of remnants and what we know about stellar evolution that we will exhaust the available reserves of gas when the universe is about 10 to the 14 years old. So 100 trillion years after the Big Bang, the last gas will be formed into the last stars. What this means for the universe is that right now we live in an era where the primary source of energy we see is nuclear fusion occurring in the centers of stars, and the combined starlight of everything is what provides the primary energy that we see of the visible universe. At some point we're going to run out of gas, which means we run out of fusion, and nuclear fusion will stop occurring on the large scale within the universe. When that happens, we're going to end up with the very last lowest mass stars beginning to burn out and becoming white dwarfs. Once those last red dwarfs become white dwarfs, no more new stars will be born. There will be no, nor, no more nuclear fusion naturally occurring within the universe. So what's going to happen is the last generation of stars will be formed. There'll be no more raw materials to make the final one more generation. It will be the final generation. And those very last stars will fade out one by one. The highest mass stars going first. The lowest mass stars ending their lives as white dwarfs going last. So the very last stars in the universe will be the very least among the stars of the universe. Okay, the smallest stars that are capable of fusing hydrogen to helium 
have a mass of about 8% the mass of the sun. It's the smallest thing you can make that still can have fusion going in. If you were 0.07 solar masses, it would never get hot enough in your core for fusion into helium to occur. In fact, you wouldn't become a star, you would become a failed star, sometimes called a brown dwarf. So 0.08 solar masses. So I run out of fuel, and then I wait for the last of the 0.08 minimal stars, smallest red dwarfs, to finally die out. These stars have very long lifetimes, 10 to the 13 years, 10 trillion years. But in a universe which is literally infinite in extent, by the time it is 10 to the 14 years old, the last generation of, of red dwarfs born when the universe was 10 to the 13 years old will begin to die out. And when they die out, they'll be the last stars ever to form within the expanding universe. And so the stars will literally go out as far as a source of energy from nuclear fusion. Now, without nuclear generation stars, sustaining life as we understand it is going to be really hard because life in the universe, life in the solar system as we understand it, is basically solar-powered to first approximation. Now, it turns out there's going to be some hydrogen around. It's just not going to be in a ball big enough to make stars. So fusion could still be possible on a limited scale. You can imagine some form of life existing out in the universe, technologically capable, could probably make its own stars by going around and collecting up enough hydrogen or maybe making hydrogen fusion reactors on a limited scale. They might go around and harvest hydrogen. They might harvest brown dwarfs or gas giant planets to be able to get the hydrogen to make a little bit of fusion to keep their little local part of the slowly darkening universe warm. So you can imagine that the form of life that would exist, what do we think of as life? Life is a self-organizing system that self-replicates, that utilizes energy to continue that cycle of self-replication. So maybe a form of life will exist whose job it is, if you will, to harvest hydrogen for energy. It's a kind of strange way of thinking, maybe a hydrogen metabolism, a very strange form of life might emerge. Or whatever beings are around doing this might make their living making their own stars as best they can. Like people running around in a, in, a, in a landscape where most of the trees are gone, finding the last few sticks to burn for warmth. It's a very cheery place, but it could be done. There's still a way. There's still energy to be tapped. So life would still be possible, even after all the last stars go out, because there's still sources of nuclear binding energy to tap for a while. The death of the last red dwarf marks the end of the Stelliferous Era and the beginning of a new era, which we'll call the Degenerate Era. It's the era in which the dominant forms of matter are organized into degenerate objects, white dwarfs, neutron stars, black holes, and brown dwarfs. This era is expected to last between 10 to the 14 and 10 to the 45 years after the Big Bang. It's marked by the fact that we're in a period now where the main form of energy generation is nuclear fusion, but in this era, there is no energy generation. Oh, a little bit of gravitational collapse maybe on the, on the, red, the, on the brown dwarfs. But pretty much you have white dwarfs just cooling off from the remnant heat they collected during the Stelliferous period, the cooling neutron stars, and of course the ultimate locker for matter is a black hole. What's going to happen during this very, very long night when there's no energy generation in the universe is the cosmic structures that we are so familiar with today are going to begin to dissolve. What do I mean by dissolution? 
Dissolution means they're going to come apart. They're going to decohere dynamically, not that they're going to dissolve in water, but it's a way of thinking about it. For example, after the universe is about 10 to the 15 years old, solar systems will begin to evaporate because of gravitational encounters with passing stars. Someone asked me after class the other day, can planets be kicked out of the solar system? And the answer is, right now, no. It's extremely hard to do that unless you have a close gravitational encounter. Such close gravitational encounters, say, with a passing star, are exceedingly rare. Exceedingly rare means they don't happen very often, or it's a very long time between when they happen. But when the universe is infinite in extent, you have all the time to wait for those rare things to begin to happen. And in fact, once you get up to about an age of 10 to the 15 years, those extremely rare events only have to happen once to blow apart a solar system, to basically dynamically disrupt the star stellar system with that close pass. When a star passes close to another star, if one of those stars has a planetary system, the interchange of energy as those two pass by each other gravitationally, as they feel each other's tides, will be to toss some planets out into rogue planets around no star and toss some planets into their planet parent star to be swallowed up. Of course, at 10 to the 15 years, the parent star is a white dwarf or a neutron star, which is a very, very small target to hit. So in fact, what's likely to happen is the planetary systems will basically be disrupted and the planets will be scattered into space. So after about 10 to the 15 years, there will be very few, if any, planets left orbiting stars, or in this case, white dwarfs, neutron stars, or black holes. Furthermore, you begin, will begin to break up binary star systems. Either wide binary systems will get broken apart, but close binaries will actually coalesce into single remnants. Two neutron stars will combine to make a black hole, for example or two black holes will merge into a larger black hole. So what we'll see is the breaking up of small dynamical systems composed of pairs or multiples of massive objects. And the universe will slowly begin to be filled with single remnants or planets, just wandering around unbound from each other. That's what I mean by dissolution. Galaxies will also start to come apart because of accumulations of star-to-star -star interactions, but I have to wait 10 to the 19 years. Two stars passing very close to each other can actually exchange enough gravitational orbital energy to kick one of the stars out of the galaxy and maybe send the other star a little bit closer to the center of the galaxy. As you send the star closer to the center of the galaxy, you send it into a place where there are more stars where the probability of interaction goes up. You can do the calculation, orbit after orbit after orbit, and you can get a lot of orbits in 10 to the 19 years because it only takes... 10 to the 8 years to orbit once. So you can get 10 to the 11 orbits of a star around its galaxy, or in this case, a remnant around its galaxy. So by about 10 to the 19 years, 90% of the remnant stars that make up an old dark galaxy will get blown, basically ejected from that galaxy. The galaxies will literally dissolve into intergalactic space. The other 10%, after about 10 to the 24 years to 10 to the 30 years, will sink into the center and coalesce into the supermassive black holes at the center. So now you will end up with the galaxies, which have hundreds of billions fill our local horizon. They'll have vanished over the horizon, but even they will begin to dissolve. And the stars will basically, the remnants will begin to fill intergalactic space and there will be no more galaxies, just remnants and black holes. After 10 to the 30 years, again, Really slow, highly improbable processes, but we have all the time in the universe for these processes to occur. 
So what's going to continue to happen? What if we keep going the clock? So after about 10 to the 30 years, all we have are neutron stars, white dwarfs, and black holes no longer organized into galaxies. We've dissolved the planets, the clusters, the galaxy clusters, and the galaxies themselves. We now have single objects. Well, it turns out that there's a prediction from extensions of the standard particle of particle physics that the proton, the nucleus of hydrogen, the ultimate and stable particle is in fact maybe not stable on very long timescales. In fact, a particle detector experiment in Japan called Super Kamiokande has now set the best lower limits on the proton half-life of 6.6 .6 times 10 to the 33 years. For our purposes, that's infinite. <laughs> Protons are ultimately stable. But if you have an infinite universe with a long time to wait, then protons will actually start to go unstable and decay into electrons, positrons, and neutrinos. Matter, as we understand it, made of protons and neutrons, will begin to break down as it begins to decay into the simplest possible particles. So after about 10 to the 45 years, every atom will be gone, except for those that are locked up deep inside of a black hole. Matter will literally come apart, given a long enough time. So does the end of matter also spell the end of life? It's hard to say. You're not going to have nuclear energy generation, so as we understand it, I couldn't even play the harvest for fusion trick. The only remaining sources of energy in the universe are going to be extremely weak background radiation as the universe cools off and gravity. So maybe if I really wanted to really stick it out, I could figure out some way to harvest gravitational energy from black holes and maybe use that as a way to warm myself. Stranger things have happened. So maybe there's a way for energy to be tapped. But once the remnants, once matter comes apart, we enter the period where the only organized form of matter left is black holes, and we enter the black hole era. But black holes are not forever. Black holes slowly evaporate and leak particles quantum mechanically through a process called Hawking radiation, described first by British physicist Stephen Hawking. It's an exceedingly slow process. A stellar mass black hole, a remnant of a massive star that long since went supernova, will dissolve in about 10 to the 67 years. Practically forever, but we've got forever to work with. So the small black holes go first, and as we go up in mass, the bigger black holes will eventually evaporate. If we make an estimate as to what's the biggest black hole you can possibly make by understood physical processes, after 10 to the 100 years, even those will evaporate into electrons, positrons, neutrinos, and little faint photons. So at the end of 10 to the 100 years, the black hole epoch will end with the end of all forms of organized matter, and we enter the dark era. At 10 to the 100 years, there's no more structures in the universe. It's basically cooling off towards radiation temperature of absolute zero. The only matter left is a thin, formless gas of electrons, positrons, and neutrinos, and the last few photons running around in the universe are so faint and shifted so far into the radio that the universe basically goes dark. The end of the universe is cold, dark, and disordered. So how do we describe this? Does this mean the end of life? The answer is yes, finally at long last, at the end of the dark era, beginning of the dark era is the final state of the universe. There's no more energy, everything's at the same temperature and the same entropy. Life is an organizing, self-replicating system that uses energy. If there's no more energy to tap, there's no more life. So this would ultimately end life in an infinite universe. The universe itself would continue to exist, but life simply could not. So in the end, 
life will be finite, although 10 to 100 years seems an awful long time to creatures who only live somewhere between 50 and 100 years. So it is, to all practical purposes, infinite. There have often been ideas about how the universe will end, and I'll leave the last word to T.S. Eliot. The way the universe will end is not with a bang, but a whimper. Any questions? I will see you all tomorrow.